Hey, everybody. It's Michelangelo Caruso. I'm here with Joshua Real. How are you, Joshua? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm great, man. You are the director of my new favorite movie. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. Before we do, if you're watching today, be sure you uh, subscribe to my YouTube channel. And also, um, you can check out the audio version of this interview on my Talk To Me podcast. It's available on all the platforms. Joshua, you are the director of a movie called The Russian Five, which I didn't know existed until after I got into the book a little bit. Did okay. the book come first or the movie? Uh, it's kind of complicated. Um, <laughs> the movie, the book came out of the movie uh, production, I guess. If okay. you will. All right. Um, yeah, it's Keith usually the other was, way around, yeah? What's that? Usually the other way around, I think. Yeah, usually. Um, you know, Keith was uh, very helpful early on in the process uh, with, with the Russian Five. Um, obviously, he's in the film as the beat re reporter for the Free Press. It was important to include his, uh, his perspective. Um, and so, you know, he, he would help us kind of make contact with some guys. Sometimes he'd tag along. And so while I was editing the film, he was writing the book kind of, you know, using his perspective. Um, and anyone who's, you know, tried to make a film knows that it takes a little bit longer than it does to write a book. Um, so, you know, the book came out first, uh, you know, and it's, it's brought a lot of people's uh, attention and awareness to the story. Um, You're speaking, of course, of Keith and, and helping with his last name. Is it Gave or Gabe? Keith Gabe. Gabe. Yeah. Who was the author of a book by the same title. Did you find it to be a competitive process or were collaborative or maybe even both? Uh, <laughs> um, gosh, ah, uh, how do I answer this diplomatically? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe um, <you> did. <laughs> yeah. There were times where it was very collaborative. Um, and there were times where, um, it, it was almost an, an impediment to the process. Um, yeah. but you know, it's, what I like is that the, the movie stands on its own. Um, it, it tells a story from sort of the, the outside of the locker room, but inside the locker room perspective, sort of this kind of God's eye view of the story. Whereas Keith's books, is, it's very from his specific perspective. Yeah, um, he was a reporter and he was kind of uh, deputized to go, and I think even paid a finder's fee to go identify some key Russian players that we might want to have here in the United States, specifically with the Detroit Red Wings, for those of you that don't know the backstory. And, um, and this not only changed hockey, it changed the Red Wings for sure, brought us our first Stanley Cup in a long time. For sure. Yeah, uh, yeah. Keith was uh, enlisted, you know, he had Russian language skills. That's right. Uh, his days um, in the, the service. And so, you know, Jim Lights knew that and he, he needed someone to go make first contact. And, you know, Keith was at the right time, right place. And, you know, as they say, the rest is history. So, yeah, we're going to try to identify the key players as we go through for people that don't know. Jim Lights, I think, was maybe director of operations, something like this. He with was the, the vice president at the time. Um, and then he actually, a little bit of trivia, he left the Detroit Red Wings to move to Dallas uh, to start the Dallas Stars as they moved from Minnesota. Um, yeah. So Jim was really instrumental in bringing hockey to Texas. And Jim was actually incredibly instrumental in this film sort of seeing um, come to the light. Um, I was living in Austin, Texas. Uh, I mean, I guess this was about gosh, seven, eight years ago now. Yeah. And I, I, I was producing for uh, this incredible director, Al Reiner, um, who you know directed for all mankind, uh, the like the quintessential uh, NASA documentary, and Al kind of encouraged me to start my own film, and this was the story I wanted to tell. So I wrote letters to everyone who was involved, and it just so happened that Jim Lights was in Dallas, and I was in Austin, and so Jim was the first person to respond, and he's like, you know, hey you're still in Texas. Why don't you drive up by 35 and let's, let's have a chat. Nice. This kind of all happened during the, the lockout, you know, where, where guys like Jim and Ken Holland and Jimmy Devolano were just waiting for the league, the owners and the players to resolve the, the bargaining. So these guys didn't have anything to do other than to talk to me. Um, so that was what really kind of started the ball rolling. And, you know, it took some time to get the Russians on board. Uh, it took some time to, to get everyone else on board. I had an investor that I thought was going to fund the whole thing. And as soon as I spent some money to go get the Russians on board, that investor disappeared. 
Um, and I was at a place in actually five years ago last week where I had to make the decision, like, how badly do I want this? Um, right. And I decided to move back to Michigan, um, put everything in storage and come back here and take one big home run swing at trying to make this film. Uh, and actually, I didn't realize it until Instagram uh, reminded me, you know, with those memories that actually was, it was five years ago um, last week, but it was on the day that the Red Wings won the first cup in 42 years, June 7th. Um, Cause I, you know, it was a photo of me flying home from the, uh, the airplane. So, you know, within a couple of months, I met my producer, Jenny Fedorovich, and she was able to bring on our executive producer, Dan Milstein. And the rest they say is history. Um, you know, we were off to the races shooting and then editing the, the film. I had a sense that, um, and sometimes it's like this when you work with big organizations, I would think that somebody, somebody of caliber, let's say, green lights the project and that opens it, all the other doors. Was yeah. it dim lights in this case that, that allowed you to access to all these people or were you already in? No, Jim lights was really the key is the first key. And so Jim lights gave me Ken Holland's information. And so, you know, Ken was, he did so many amazing things for, for the, this franchise. He also was not, you know, doing anything. He was waiting for the lockout to end. And I was home for Christmas and I called him and he said, let's meet at Barnes and Noble for coffee and uh, let me hear your pitch. And he got really excited and he just said, you know, hey, anything you need, you let me know. And so a year later, I came back with the crew during the Winter Classic to try to, you know, meet the Russians and, and shoot a teaser so I could raise funds. And I'll, I'll never forget, you know, I was in Ken's office and he called in Todd Beam, who was the, you know, the, the Red Wings um, director of communications. And his introduction was, Todd, this is Joshua. Uh, I met him a year ago. He wants to make a documentary about the Russian Five, and he hasn't given up yet, so I think we should help him. That's you know, and then it took some time to win Todd's uh, trust. But, you know, Ken kind of opening the door was huge. And, you know, if Ken Holland says these guys are cool, then Igor takes, you know, takes my phone call. Yeah. And slowly, everyone kind of came on board. And we put the pieces together and, and yeah. I read that you did the, uh, the trailer or yeah. some version of a trailer well before the movie was done to keep the interest going uh, and maybe even find an investor. Is that what happened? Yeah, so you know, generally when you make a documentary, there's a couple paths, but you know, financing is always one of the hardest things to do in filmmaking, um, especially on an independent level. And so we cut the teaser, well, we, we shot the teaser with the intention that this is going to serve uh, the purpose of, of trying to lure an investor in so we can get the money to, to do it right. You know, all the, the archival footage we had to pull off of YouTube at low resolution. So, it, you know, parts of it looked look bad and parts of it looked great. Um, but that was really the, the key, you know, and, and with that teaser, that was what convinced Igor, okay, this guy can, can do this. So he signed on once he saw the teaser um, and yeah, you know, it was a huge critical part of the process, um, that, you know, you can, you can tell someone your vision, oh, I want to do this. I want to do that. But until they can sort of see it as well, it's hard for other people to sort of put themselves in your own mind's eye. Um, but having something tangible, like a, a teaser is that's really the key. And, and so then, you know, like I said, guys like Igor or Dan Milstein, our investor could watch it and say, okay. I see where you're going with this. Let's, let's do it. Yeah. I was in the music business about a thousand years ago and we had access at the time to these little chintzy four track recorders. Yeah. And we learned pretty quickly that the four track demo didn't do a, a good job selling us. We, we had to pay for studio time and get something representative because people just didn't have the imagination to see what we saw. Right. I, I imagine it's the same thing in your creative process. Absolutely. Speaking, speaking of the creative process, uh, something I noticed during the movie is you're, you're pulling footage from all different types of sources. Yeah. It looked like maybe YouTube, and I don't, I don't begrudge you this because you got to get, get it where you can get it. And I know you got the very best stuff you could get. Old television clips, various yeah. standards of quality. Did you struggle with that? Did you have to doctor a lot of stuff to get it up to speed? Well, thankfully, there was only a few clips that we could only find on YouTube, you know, like the Don Cherry stuff whether the CBC no longer has it or they didn't want to let it out. You know, we, we, yeah. 
we couldn't get that from them. Um, I got a lot of the game footage from actually the Red Wings. They, they kept an archive, but they're on all those old three quarter inch pneumatic tapes. So, you know, there's no HD footage from, from this era. It's barely SD, you know? Um, so that was a huge process of digitizing all that. Cause these tapes are so fragile yeah. that, you know, it's recommended you actually digitize them while you watch it the first time and you don't watch it and then rewind it because you don't know if the tape will rewind yeah. and like break off in the player. Um, so, you know, we've got a hard drive with about 28 terabytes of archival footage that I had to sort through, wow. you know, looking for the moments that are, you know, whether it's a specific goal that Sergei Fedorov scores or a hit that Vladimir Konstantinov puts on, or, you know, what I was looking for was those human moments. Um, you know, there's a moment in the film where uh, four of the five Russians, Slava Fatisov, who had the flu or something at the time, saying, we wish you a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. And that's something where a process where when I interviewed Mickey Redman, he had remembered that. And so he mentioned that to me. So then I had a, a window of time, which is like, okay, this is, you know, these couple weeks of December 1995, let me dig through all of the games and Mickey remembered it was on the road. So let's pull all the road games. And then you're just scrubbing through and watching the between period stuff and hoping that it's captured on the tape. Sure enough, there it was, you know? And so it's sort of a, it's a little bit of like a sleuthing, um, you know, investigative reporting where you're pulling whatever little details you can to give you clues as to where to find it. And then you jump into those just absurd amount of footage. Yeah, it's a lovely uh, human moment. Yeah, uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a fan of almost all sports, and it's occurred to me as a, somebody who teaches professional speaking that it can be really hard to get a professional athlete to give, you know, sound bites. They're so gifted in other ways, but but we never really count on them to be, you know, like uh, philosopher kings or anything like that. Yeah. Did you uh, did you struggle with that finding finding, you know. Uh, footage that allowed them to, to not, not just be articulate, but uh, because I think most of them are, yeah. but to be particularly clever or fun or human as we're talking about. You know, it was interesting as we did the interviews to sort of see their personalities kind of unfold and how that played into it. But also like comparing it to, you know, these are these guys that as a kid, I grew up just, you know, looking up to. So Steve Eiserman, everyone looked up to as the captain, you know, Steve's a very stoic figure, you know, um, he's going to give you thoughtful responses, but he's not going to show a lot of emotion. Right. That's just who he is. And, and that's something that everyone on the team commented on, you know, when Steve Eiserman gave an, an impassioned speech in the locker room, you listen up because he never did it. Right. Um, whereas someone like Darren McCarty is bringing all the fun. What was surprising to me is like, not only did Darren have a lot of, you know, fun, excitable way things that he was saying but he also had a really philosophical bent to him as you get to know dmac you know he's not just the tough guy bruiser fighter that you know we think of as when you see him beating the crap out of claude the mew darren has a lot of depth to him um you know sometimes people don't see that because they see the other part of it um so i got to see that in, in the interview you know he's saying these things where you're like wow like that's really really poignant and so, like, Darren becomes a focal interview uh, as we're editing it. You know, whenever we're sitting in the, the, the post room, matters like, you know, who says this the best? Honestly, half the time we turn to Darren's interview first. Um, Chris Osgood, another guy who's really articulate and brings a lot of, you know, good energy to it. Um, I think him being um, doing Fox Sports Detroit has really helped him kind of come out of the shell of the goaltender. Yeah, um, where now he's he's able to really show his personality and articulate a thought um, really really well. Someone like Brendan Shanahan, though, he's just a natural storyteller um, and funny guy, uh, great personality. So, telegenic. Yeah, you know, and then, then you get someone like Igor who is extremely thoughtful, and it was harder to pull the human emotion out of him um, because he's he's really giving you the 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 intelligent perspective. And so when we got those moments, those were gold, you know, just to see Igor laugh or to see him get kind of emotional talking about Vladdy. Um, and as a director in the interview, you're hoping for that, but you can't count on it. And, 
you know, there's only so much you can push these guys to, you know, because they are who they are. And they, you know, they've been dealing with the media for most of their lives at this point. So you're not going to coach them in a new way within, you know, the, the span of a 90 minute to two hour interview. It's, it's just, it is what it is. And not for nothing, your five principles were Russian. Also yeah. a, a type of person not known for being overly expressive. No, you know, and <laughs> you know, the funniest thing about that is, you know, Slava Kozlov's interview was done in Russian. I don't speak Russian. Um, we did not know that he wanted to do the interview in Russian until we got to location, set up the interview. Oh. Um, it was at a practice rink where he was, you know, he was uh, coaching a team in Russia. And he comes into the room and he he's, he's tells us he'd feel more comfortable speaking in Russian because English to him hasn't really been functional since he moved back to, to Moscow. And so thankfully, you know, two of my producers, well, one was Russian, one's Ukrainian. Um, so we kind of on the fly created the system where I would ask the question in English and he still understands English well enough that most of the time he didn't need the question repeated in Russian. Occasionally he'd ask for a clarification on something. He would answer back in Russian and Jenny and Raisa would listen to them and Jenny would type out like very brief notes on her phone as he's speaking so that I would kind of get a, a general idea of what he was saying. Or she'd say, oh, he didn't answer this thing that you wanted. So ask a follow up. And we kind of had to create this sort of, you know, bilingual mechanism on the fly. Wow. Uh, but, you know, Kazi kind of brings the house down with the, the com comedic relief, which is just funny because he is kind of, he's still grumpy. Um, you know, I, I saw him uh, at the Little Caesars Arena while they were building it. They, they brought all the players from the 97 Cup team to sort of see the construction. Kazi was the only Russian that was able to make it in. And the whole time he's kind of side-eyeing me, just like, why are you still here? You know, and, and why are you still filming me? And then as we're walking to the elevator, he kind of sides up next to me and goes, so how's the movie coming? I was like, it's, it's, we're editing it. It should be done pretty soon. He just kind of cracks a smile. Okay. And that was it, you know, but still like that's his personality. So yeah, there's stoic guys, you know, Sergey is the most Americanized of the group. Um, but he's also, you know, he was the guy who was being pulled in eight different directions when we were trying to do his interview because he was the general manager of Cisco at the time. You know, so we actually, you know, got our interview with him in between practice and a general manager's meeting. So, you know, you, that's all part of the fun of documentary. And I, I use fun loosely because sometimes it's fun and sometimes it's extremely stressful. Joshua, let's break down the, uh, the, the story because that's really what yeah. movie, movie making is about. You're telling yeah. a story. There are five principles. I loved how you, you develop the characters. Uh, Groucho Marx once famously said that character is everything. So let's name the five Russians and then let's do a little uh, keyword game where you use one word to describe each of the five characters. Let's okay. listen to hockey players first. Well, this is fun because actually this is something that I did with everyone on the end of the interview. So now you're turning the tables on me. Oh, cool. Yeah. So let's name the five uh, hockey players first, the Russians. We'll start with oldest. Uh, Slava Fatisov, uh, you know, the Papa Bear. Um, wise you know he's just and i darren and i had the the opportunity to go to uh israel with with slava fatisov back in december to show the movie and we all took a trip to jerusalem together and I, it was actually kind of amazing because you know slava is this he's the equivalent of michael jordan to hockey globally right america not so much like but like americans and canadians how they look at wayne gretzky that's how the rest of the world looks at Slava Fatisov. And I kid you not, we are in the tomb of Christ. Um, and these Russian tourists spot Slava and they just lose their, lose their mind. They're like, oh my goodness. And the next thing I know, these tourists are taking a selfie with Slava in front of the tomb of Christ. Wow. Like, it, but with all of that, there's this wisdom because of what he went through. His struggle to leave the Soviet Union. Um, He's now a UN climate change ambassador, um, you know, and so it was really interesting on the, the bus rides to just talk about climate change with him hmm. and for him to like, to realize how seriously he's taking it. And because he's seeing it as a, as an ambassador with the UN, he's 
traveling around the planet, seeing these places and hearing these stories. And he, he was telling me when he was a kid, there was this place in Moscow that would have ice, you know, four or five months out of the year and they go skating. And now they're lucky if they get six weeks of ice. And like, it's those tangible things that made him realize like, Oh, this is actually something that I, I want to pursue. Impressive. Yeah. Um, Next. Igor Larionov, the professor. Um, intelligent. I mean, that's sort of the go-to, right? Everyone knows how smart Igor is and, where, you know, Slava is sort of from this experience of life wisdom. Igor just seems like he has this innate intelligence about him. He's thoughtful. Um, he's, he's just a super good, great guy, you know. Well, before we went to Israel, we had a screening in London that Igor came to, and we did a Q&A with him, and it was really cool to do that. Nice. Um, you know, he's the guy who, he's the quiet leader of the group. Um, and not just the Russian five, but really the locker room, I think. And a lot of, you know, Darren and Chris Draper and, and Ozzy, they'd all talk, talk about, you know, Igor was the kind of the guy who they looked to for wisdom, you know, and they, while they're flying on the plane, Igor's telling these stories about just the world and educating these young Canadian guys about the Cold War and all these things that he went through. Um, he brought, he brought chess to the Red Wings, yeah? He brought chess to the Red Wings. He um, hit, I guess, him and Vladdy actually kind of were the ones that brought the soccer to the Red Wings. Okay. And that's now become a staple across the NHL. Like, from what I understand, at least half of the teams in the NHL, there's a group of players that will kick the soccer ball around before the game. That came from the Russians, you know? Huh. So, yeah, the just really, really wonderful person. Uh, then we have Vladimir Konstantinov, um, a warrior, you know, and, and so people will think of that as, you know, on the ice because Vladdy had these huge hits. Um, he was just indestructible on the ice. He'd laid people out, you know. Um, he, he ended a couple players' careers with hits, you know, like he hit them that hard. But I think of him as a warrior not because of anything he did on the ice, but what he did post the accident. The fact that no one expected Vladimir Konstantinov to survive the night of June 13, 1997. Um, his injuries were so bad. And here it is over 20 years later, and he is still alive. He's still fighting. Um, there's still that glint of personality in his eyes. Um, he came to our, our theatrical premiere. Actually, he came to our, our uh, festival premiere as well at the, the Fillmore. But our theatrical premiere, I got to actually sit with him and watch him watch the movie. And what moved me so much was that when he would see a player that he played with, whether it was Stevie or Sergey or Nick, he'd, he'd like get really excited and be like, Stevie, Stevie, and Nick, Nick. And when Don Cherry came on screen, he started growling in Russian to his daughter. And she was like, it's okay, dad, it's okay. Like, Funny. I don't know what, you know what he said, but, but what really moved me the most was when – so we have We're the Champions in the film. Um, and there's a story, and I wish we could have explored it a little more, but, you know, run time and all that. When Vladdy was in the coma, they would play that song for him. Uh, Igor's daughters and Vladdy's daughter would sing it to him. Um, and he would respond. That he'd have ticks up and, and his heart rate, and he'd squeeze fingers. And so, you know, I had to write a letter to Queen's lawyers. I don't know if Brian May ever saw it or not, but it was effective enough that they said, we'll let you have this song for a pittance basically. Wow. Um, and so when he was watching the movie and that song came on, he started singing along with the words, you know, and he's mumbling it, but I was just, I got goosebumps and I started getting really emotional and I couldn't really perform in the Q and a that day. I was just so overcome with emotion. I passed the mic to Jenny a whole lot in that Q and a, um, because that person is still there. You know, the guy that his teammates knew as the Vladinator, he's still there trapped inside um, this brain injury. And it was amazing to sort of just see this, this little moment of him reconnecting with that person. Yeah. Um, Back to uh, storytelling for just a second. Yeah. Uh, for those not f familiar with the movie, this is one of those famous um, uh, spoiler alerts, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, 
and I always feel funny about spoiler alerts, like, you know, the Titanic sank everybody. You know, right. if, if you haven't seen the movie yet, the Titanic sank. Right. I always think everybody knows the Red Wing story because, of course, we're from Michigan. Right. Uh, but you, you do this long, like, road up, you know, long road back. Detroit's in the dumps. The Detroit Red Wings are in the dumps, and they, 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 they get some talent, but it's not the right combination of talent. They're still uh, helping people defect from Russia, and it's a long, long road. And then they win the Stanley Cup. And then the big reveal, of course, uh, if, you, if you're not familiar with the story, there's a terrible car accident. Watch the movie to see the, to, to really appreciate what happened. But that's the accident that Joshua is uh, referring to right now. Um, okay, we got three of the heroes down. Who's next? Sergei Fedorov. Um, I'm going to say misunderstood. Um, I got to get, I had the, you know, the, the amazing opportunity to get to know Sergei through this process. And, you know, what people saw Sergei Fedorov as is maybe aloof or it was selfish. Um, or, you know, he always got ripped on for not wanting to play hurt. You know, he was always sort of under attack from the fans and the media. Sergei is the most generous, just big hearted, childlike guy. Um, and I, personally, I think a lot of that, the perception came from, he maybe wasn't able to express that in a way. And, and the media didn't want to cover him in that way. And I think there was also this protective layer. Um, if you're someone like that, when you come to America as a 19 year old kid, you know, and, and everyone wants a piece of you right away and you're a very generous person, maybe at first you start giving them and then you start to realize that that, that can come back to haunt you. Yeah. And then the wall comes up. Um, but you know, Sergey, I'll tell you a little very brief anecdote just to show his generosity. Um, when we showed the movie in Moscow, um, Sergey, you know, after the after party, him and I killed a, a bottle of cognac, and uh, we—the only time I've ever sang karaoke in my life was Sergey egging me on, "Let's sing karaoke, brother." And then uh, a couple of days later, he took me golfing, and then took me to practice. Where, when he said practice, I thought it was going to be the team that he he manages no it was his like men's league practice and actually on his line was the prime minister of russia he wasn't the prime minister then um he was like you know the ir the, the equivalent of their irs there but in january misha was made the prime minister so it was just very surreal and i was telling sergey i was like yeah you know i need to go shopping for my nephew for christmas every year i get him a matryoshka doll and we get into Sergey's office and he sees this limited edition, like special Matryoshka doll from this Red Army thing. And he's like, you know what? Give your nephew this. And I was like, seriously? He's like, yeah, this gift from Sergey. Wow. And so my nephew for this Christmas got a gift from Sergey Fedorov from me. Um, but it was just that generosity. Uh, you know, was, what do you need, brother? What do you need? Um, that. You know, it, maybe it's limited to the people that he trusts, but if he trusts you, he'll give you, he, I've heard stories of him like giving the watch off of his hand to, to people. Um, Darren McCarty told me this story when he was a rookie that Sergey found out Darren loved rock and roll. He was like, hey, we're going to see Stone Temple Pilots at the, the Joe Louis Arena. Come with us, you know, and let's, let's go take the limo and all this stuff. So, you know, he's a, uh, He's a really great person. Uh, he got a really bad rap. Um, I know fans were really burnt about him leaving Detroit for Anaheim. Once you get to know Sergey a little bit, you understand that he just needed a complete change of scenery in his life. I think we've all been there. Yeah. Um, we forget, like, he gave us so many years of his life to the city of Detroit. Um, and he just needed a change of scenery for personal reasons. He also so, had a, a very famous uh, girlfriend pulling at Amanda Kornikova, yeah? Yeah, I mean, I personally, I think that was part of the reason he needed a change of scenery because that was after they kind of, their relationship, you know, fell apart and very much in the media spotlight, you know? And it, that's hard on someone when you truly, truly care and love someone, have that relationship fall apart but also under the microscope. Who's number five? Slava Kozlov. And we say it in the movie, and I'll say it here, grumpy. 
Um, you know, and understandably so when you think about what Slava Kozlov has gone through in his life. You know, um, he watched his best friend die in a car accident that he was at the wheel of. He almost lost his, his passion, his career, everything in that car accident. Um, and, you know, he's a very stoic guy. Um, he's a good guy, though. He's also very generous, um, humble, but he's, you know, he still kind of carries that edge on him of, of the trauma of life. And it's, I can't even imagine, like, putting yourself in his shoes to think about, he came to America in Detroit because of this car accident that his, his best friend and teammate was killed in. He finally achieves the dream that all of hockey players ever, ever want to achieve. And his two of his closest friends on the team, you know, Papa Bear, who was a mentor, and Vladdy, who Kazi and Vladdy were quite close because they were very Russian, um, are almost killed in this car accident. Like the trauma of that, it's just unfathomable. And I have a piece of archival footage that didn't make it in the film because once we get to the accident, we kind of move in a very brisk pace towards, you know, that really emotional moment in Washington in 98. But like Kazi getting really choked up talking about the accident in 98 and they interviewed him coming back of the, you know, the next season. Um, yeah. Carrying those, those, those heartaches and wounds, you know, around, especially for a Russian man who you're not supposed to show, you know, any sort of emotion. And yeah. so you bottle it up and you know, that that's sort of the end result is you come across kind of being a grumpy guy. You're a hockey fan. I take it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm a hockey fan. Uh, sports fan in general uh to be honest hockey wasn't my my the biggest sport for me growing up baseball was what um, city did you grow up in i grew up in port huron okay so you know we're we're an hour north of detroit uh up off of the lake uh interesting place to great place to visit strange place to grow up in <laughs> um but you know we were all just when the wings became the powerhouse that they became and as you know, it just gripped everyone in Michigan. So if you were not a hockey fan prior to that, you became one. You bet. And so, you know, for me, I started becoming a hockey fan actually through Sergey and Vladdy. You know, these, these sort of, who are these Russians? You know, that, that's different. And I always like kind of things that were out of the norm. And, and Pavel Bure was actually one of my favorite players because he was Russian, you know, the Russian Rocket. And so... And then just as I started watching them, I just, I got hooked on the sport and, and I just knew that I had to tell this story. Um, it was so it's your first movie directing. Um, and I would say very successful, but you know, the movie business has changed a lot. I don't even know how to gauge the success of movies anymore because they're released in theaters. They're released online. There's original content. They can come out as a series. Yeah. Do you have any idea how many people have watched it? I don't, and it's hard to kind of quantify that, but what I do know is, you know, we've been able to show this movie across the country. At one point we were in about, I think 90 theaters across America, which for an independently produced film is kind of unheard of actually. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it's really surreal to think about this because this was last summer, last spring and summer. And so, you know, my, my Instagram reminded me that today, Last year, we were in Toronto screening the film with Scotty Bowman and Brendan Shanahan. And now we're living in this world where movie theaters aren't open for the public. And the experience that we got to have with the Russian Five is one that currently doesn't exist. Will it come back? We hope so. Um, you know, it's a strange, strange way to kind of figure out success, but, uh, you know, it's like you take the little victories, the fact that people from Russia love the movie and people from Israel love the movie so much that they flew us all out there to show it. And then Israeli sports TV said, we have to have it. Um, you know, I believe, I don't know if it's come out, but you know, Italy acquired a distributor in Italy acquired the film. Um, I believe it's out in the UK. Um, you know, the strangest thing, but actually turned out to be kind of, the most widespread way people saw it was 
we were able to get the film on an in-flight entertainment. And so basically all summer and fall last year, I, you know, at least once a week, I'd get a text from a friend who was like, Hey, check it out. And they, it'd always be the back of an airline seat with the film. And, you know, one of my best friends since childhood, he was flying back from New York. Um, he's a musician and he had a kind of a heartbreaking meeting with his management. He was kind of in a weird place. He's really down and he looks up and a guy three rows ahead of him is watching the Russian five. And he was like that. Oh, wow. That dude, he texts me. He's like, dude, you made it. Like, congratulations. Like whatever it is, like this has to quantify as it somehow. Um, you know, so to me, just the fact that a lot of people have seen it is all that really matters. Um, yeah. You know, the economics of the, the film industry are very weird and strange, and especially right now. Um, you know, thankfully, we got the release in when we did, because otherwise, you know, it would have really hurt our ability to kind of recoup what our investor put into it. Um, but, yeah, you're right. It's very – there's no path. There's no one path anymore. Um, and the traditional path, the path that we took, even though we didn't take the most traditional way of it, is, you know – Make your film, you take it to a film festival, you hope that it plays well, and you hope you get an offer from a distributor um, if you haven't gotten one prior to just you know, getting in the festival. And so for us, you know, we, we missed out on some of the bigger fests. Um, we had a choice, do we hold this back or do we play the Free Film Festival? And you know, the collaboration with the Detroit Free Press Film Festival was so incredible and they, they took so, good care of us that it was like you know there's no way even if we played con that we would get the reception for this and to be able to show this film for the first time home with vladimir konstantinov in the room you know with like 2500 red wings fans chanting before the the movie it just so happened that it was at the fillmore which is like you know the venue that i grew up going to shows at like one of the first interviews I ever did was in the green room at the Fillmore with Incubus back in like 1999. It used to be the state theater back then. Yeah. I, I have a weird time calling it the Fillmore. Um, I won't call Pine Knob the other thing, but um, so it was this really just perfect kind of full circle. And then we played the Seattle International Film Festival, which, you know, is this huge three week long festival and the oldest running festival in America or North America. Um, and it's, it kind of put us on the map and that was what kind of got us a distributor for our digital release. Um, and you know, you put the pieces together and thankfully, you know, my producer, Steve Bannatyne, his dad is an old friend of Doc Emmerich from NBC sports. And so his dad sent Doc the movie and Doc loved it so much that he sent it to the VP of programming at NBC sports. At the time they were not acquiring movies at all. Everything that they were making sports-wise was produced in-house. But they liked it so much, they're like, we're going to make an exception. And we're going to acquire this. So we, you know, found ourselves with a, a cable TV deal. Um, ironically, at NBC, no one could have predicted this, but when the NHL got shut down this year, you know, lo and behold, the NBC Sports had some content to put on, and they were running the, the Russian Five continuously for the first couple weeks, you know, like at least once a week. And so it got a lot of eyeballs. Um, so I don't know, it, going about it independently, you really just have to kind of forge your own path, build a great team. You know, Jenny and Steve did an incredible job of just reaching out to distributors or whether it was here in the U.S. or working with our eventual distributor, Gunpowder and Sky, but then also making those deals internationally. Um, because as we found out, you know, uh, the distribution game also is, is a strange thing no. to kind of navigate so i got a couple more questions for you the music was by wayne kramer i'm guessing yeah. it's the wayne kramer the wayne kramer yeah for uh, for those of you that don't know he's a detroit music legend goes way back to the mc5 and yeah and he had experience doing film scores before he had wayne you know he's done a lot of a lot of great work um both as the mc5 as a composer yeah. um ironically he scored eastbound and down at least the first two seasons, which are, you know, that show was, I love that show. You know, Kenny Powers is just this great character. Um, and, you know, it's a funny story. We had 
two really good friends of mine were, were set to compose the film originally. And one of them's in a pretty big Detroit-based band, um, Dale Earnhardt Jr. Jr. And when they agreed and we all kind of started the plans for them to score the film, his life was in a very different place. And there were a lot of delays just from financing and then post-production and all this other stuff that when it came time to like, okay, hey, actually, now I need you guys to score this entire film and you have like eight weeks to do it. He's like, dude, I, I hate to do this to you, but my wife and I have adopted two children and she, we just found out she's pregnant. Like, I, I just don't have the bandwidth anymore. And so the other guy was like, I, I can do it. And I really wanted to just give it to him. And my producers were like, look, we have this opportunity. Our music supervisor, Margaret Kramer, Wayne's wife, had mentioned the film to Wayne and Wayne was excited about it. Wayne had actually offered to, to step in and, and it was one of the hardest decisions I had to make as a director of like, okay, do I take this project from my, my friends who have been scoring all my other stuff so that I can give it to this legend? And, you know, I had to kind of put aside my personal feelings and, and do the thing that was best for the film, which was to have Wayne Kramer score the film. And, you know, Wayne also had a music library available so it was we were able to tap into that so we didn't have to write everything from scratch he gave us the stems so we were our music or our sound mixer was actually creating original compositions from pre-recorded stems and he's eric our, our mixer was is also a michigander so he was living in austin texas where we finished the film and when we were able to fly Wayne and Margaret in for a, a spotting session, which is where we all sit down and we watch the movie and we talk through, this could go here. What about this? What's the sound? Eric, you know, he's trying to be cool about it, but he had like the Wayne Kramer guitar in his music studio and Wayne spotted it. And so while we were kind of taking a quick lunch break, Wayne walked over and he picked it up and he started strumming on it. And Eric got this really amazing, like, life experience to have Wayne Kramer play his guitar in his studio. And there was a moment where like, we should be Instagramming this for our social, but also I just want to let them have their moment, you know, and would have been, know, I, that'd have been like shooting a selfie in the tomb of Christ. Yeah. I don't want to be that tourist. <laughs> um, but Wayne is just like, I mean, everyone talks about how incredible he has. He is as a guitar player and a musician, but he's an even better human being you know, and, and to get to know him through this process and work with him um, was just an incredible honor, just a huge honor. And, you know, I joked about, you know, there were a lot of things that went wrong in the making of this movie. Um, but we reached a point where I took the film back to Austin, Texas to finish the post-production process with an editor that I went to college with. And that was when Wayne came on board and all this stuff. And it, it was a moment where I told my producer, Steve, I feel like the brakes are finally falling in our direction, you know? And it, it really was kind of when we got, got the film back in Texas, which is where it started, um, that things like that happened where, okay, now Wayne's on board and now the animation is coming in. And, you know, our first rental that we landed in had a rat infestation and, and all this stuff. And it was just like, okay, we got to get out of here. And, my producer found an, a, a air, it was an Airbnb, it was like a short-term rental for the exact amount of time we needed in the exact neighborhood that I had used to live in. Oh, wow. So I, like, I knew everything in my, my coffee shop was a five minute walk and it was just like, okay, now this feels right. You know, the universe started to feel like it was aligning for us. In part, I think, cause we put up and we didn't give up. You know, we kept pushing through all the obstacles, all the hurdles, just having faith that, you know, the story that we were telling was important and we were just vessels for it. So just keep moving forward. It's a fantastic story. Um, you know, back to Keith, the, the book covers talks about things like um, intrigue and espionage and, and, um, and uh, tragedy and coming from behind. Yeah. And I thought, well, they're kind of overplaying the language a little bit there, but I'll be damned. It had all that stuff in it. It is a very remarkable story, especially for a sports story and yeah. i thought you did a great job telling it i hope a, a million more people see it over over the next couple of years 
thanks. I mean, so do I, you know, and it's out there and it's, it's fun to, you know, every now and then I'll hop on the, our Twitter account and see people commenting on it. And, you know, we've actually been getting very favorable comparisons to the Michael Jordan documentary, um, which, the last you know, dance. the last dance. Yeah. There was quite a few tweets where people's like, okay, I finished the last dance and I'm having withdrawals. What do I watch? And people who saw the Russian fire responding, the Russian five, like see this. And um, so, you know, we just have a 90 minute hundred, I guess 99 minute film versus a 10 part episode. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you know, great job. Thank what you. What are you working on now, man? So, you know, I, I started to kind of kick together some new projects, um, some documentary, some fiction. And, you know, I actually started working just in the research phase in a documentary about the opioid crisis right now. Um, you know, there's actually some really interesting tangential connections from the people that I met through the Russian five, like Ken Daniels, who lost his son to a fentanyl overdose. Um, you know, Denise Illich lost her brother, Ronald, to an fentanyl overdose. Um, and so starting to kind of pull some strains together, of like, okay, how do we make this? What's the approach? And then COVID hit. And so a lot of the things that I wanted to approach were like, well, I'm not going to be going to talking to any doctors about opioids right now because they've got bigger fish to fry. And, and, and so that kind of, right, I'm going to put that on the shelf and, and we'll revisit that when things, the world is a little bit saner to, to do so. Um, and when I moved back to Detroit in 2015, it was on the tail end of this other project that I had spent five years working on. Um, it came out of my college thesis project and it was a sort of web series, TV series. We weren't sure what it was that we shot on like $6,000. Um, that was very much like Borat meets Curb Your Enthusiasm, um, meets, uh, you know, man versus food. And so it's a sort of comedy satire about a competitive eater who wants to become America's 4th of July hot dog champion. Um, and we, I found this incredibly talented, gifted actor who just embodied the character. So we would go into spaces and he would be this character and no one knew that it was a thing. We just shot it as though it was a documentary. And so we, we shot this entire season of, of a story. And then we started putting it together. And then we spent a lot of time pursuing the deal, right? How do we get it to FX or how do we get it to... Cartoon Network or Adult Swim or, or how do we get it to Comedy Central? All these these paths, and I mined a lot of the connections I had from the University of Texas at Austin. We had a lot of offers, and none of it felt right. Um, and so we kept passing on these these things, waiting for something better to come along. And it got to the point where his life kind of was pulling him in another direction, and I knew that I needed either moved back to Detroit to make the Russian five or the Russian five wasn't going to happen. And it felt like that wasn't going to happen. So I moved back to Detroit and I just put that hard drive in storage. And so when COVID hit, I needed to do something creative to keep myself sane. And I had already been thinking about what do I do with that footage? Like how could I, you know, cannibalize it in a way where I can make something out of it. And it was just like, I should just finish the, the damn thing. And like, we don't have a TV deal. We don't have a thing, but let's just finish it. So it's not this, this albatross hanging around my neck of this project that I spent five years on a lot of my own money um, that just never saw the light of day because everyone that saw it was like, this is awesome. This is so funny. So I've spent the last three months now, I guess. Actually, I started in April, um, April 1st. So the last two two months in a week cutting and I've cut a lot 11 episodes. And so now we are trying to put together a release strategy where we're going to put it out on the internet for, for free. Um, there's going to be about 45 to 50 episodes. They're about four to seven minutes long each. Um, and it's been this incredibly fun experience to kind of dig into this footage that we shot 10 years ago. Um, and to be perfectly frank, like, the filmmaker that I became making the Russian five has informed the ability to cut this old footage with a lot more precision. Wow. Um, and, and, you know, 
hopefully all of us grow in 10 years. And as a storyteller, I've grown so much that it's been very quick process. And, and before where I would, oh, I don't want to cut that because we, we went through all this hassle to get that, that, that bit. Now I'm like, doesn't really fit the story gone. You know, it's and, a kind of confidence. Yeah. Yeah. It's a confidence. And also just, you know, once you've been through the marathon, once you know how to pace yourself, you know, when to go faster, when to slow down, when to drink the water. Like, and so when I, I approached this new edit, it really became this like, okay, this is how I do it. Plus also having 10 years of time pass is this completely new perspective on the footage itself. Um, and it's really been kind of crazy because it captured Austin, Texas in this time capsule of 2010. And I don't, if you know anything about Austin, Texas, it has changed more dramatically in 10 years than even Detroit has changed in the last 10 years. Yeah. And as someone who's living in Detroit right now, like it's pretty dramatic changes. So it seems like every episode I'm working on something no longer exists, whether it's a taqueria or uh, a music festival, all these things that have changed. And I'm sure COVID will exponentially push this along the way that I didn't realize that at the time, but now I do that we created this moment in time of Austin, Texas in the fall of 2010, really at a moment that that city was sort of on the precipice of giant change. It had been changing, but a lot of people put 2011, 2012 as sort of the turning point. South by South just kind of turned into this gigantic monster from the, you know, it was always a film and music festival, but it was the tech side the interactive side that really took it to the next level. And that kind of took off in 11 and 12. So, uh, you know, it's, it's been a really crazy, awesome, fun thing. And we also no longer have, you know, the, the pressure of like, we have to make this, we have to, you know, sell it to whomever or it has to get on TV because like, you know, we wanted to shoot the second and third season that we had written. And we're both Joel and I are both 10 years older now. Like, he's not going to be able to go eat the things that he could when he was in his early thirties, you know, yeah, yeah. Um, it's just not realistic. And, and even if this takes off and, and we get the opportunity, which I'll be honest, like we've talked about like, where's hungry Todd Rungi now, 10 years later, what would his journey be? Um, and we're super into the idea of exploring that, but we've both like, I don't want to focus it on this competitive eating thing. Like we, the character should make a turn. We did that. It's been done. Um, check mark, you know, it's move on. You know, it's um, interesting when, when anyone's in the creative process, uh, it almost becomes a, a game oh, yeah. uh, about what you can control and what you can't control and, and trying to influence things that you just have, it's just wasting your time. Yeah. Uh, you know, the famous story from the Irishman, they were trying to make it for years and trying to line up De Niro and Scorsese and their schedules never aligned and, and, uh, and, they, and they both are professional and they've been doing this for so long. They just, I, I had this sense in all the interviews that I watch, they just, you know, like you say, drink the water, man. Just let it pass. Right. When the, when the, you're waiting for this, right? You're waiting for the calendar to come around again. Yeah. Yeah, no, I mean, and that's, I think that's also comes with the confidence of getting through, yeah. making the Russian five and the experience of, of taking it out to the world. And, you know, we, I t I'll tell you a funny story is, when all we were making this Hungry Todd Rungi show and the characters like the Southern Texas redneck, he's got the Texas drawl and, and he's very funny. Um, Duck Dynasty was kind of blowing up at the time. Yeah. So everyone was looking for the next Duck Dynasty. And there was about a three month period where we would get at least every other day an email from some producer for some reality TV production company who it always, the conversation would always go, okay, we found your stuff on YouTube. This is amazing. We'd love to like develop a show around Todd. And I'd have to be like, okay, hold on. Do you, do you understand what we're doing here? Like, what, what do you mean? It's like, Todd is Joel. I'm like what, what? It's like, Todd isn't real. It's a thing we're doing. It's a bit, it's, it's Andy Kaufman. And there'd be this silence in this, oh, dude, that's cool. I don't know how to pitch that, but that's cool. And we had created this thing, which, you know, it sounds cliche to say was ahead of its time. 
right? It was before Instagram influencers and all this stuff, which I saw coming, which is why I wanted to create the character in the way where Hungry Todd Rungy exists on Instagram and he exists on Twitter and he exists on Facebook and you can interact with them. And you, know, you can watch his episode and you can see him go to, you know, Chick-fil-A and do a contest and vomit blood from eating 53 nuggets, which is a real thing. Um, and you could talk to him about it, you know, via messenger. And I saw this in 2010. I, I, I figured this is where entertainment is headed, this sort of interactive multi-platform yeah. place. But no one else could see it at the time. And so no one wanted to be the first one to like, all right, let's green like this, you know? And maybe this idea is on your way to the next big idea. Yeah, you know, and it's a thing where you realize that, as you just said, there's only so much you can control, right? And Joel and I were beating our heads against the pavement and the walls, just trying to figure out how do we push this through and make it a reality. The world wasn't ready for it right now, you know, at the time. And yeah. I had to go on my path and make the Russian Five He's got a, you know, a sweet little daughter now, um, and he's a, he's a wonderful father. Um, and, you know, I think both of those things, if we were able to kind of make Hungry Todd Rungi 2.0, will inform the character and the story so that it can be even more than a funny, you know, human thing. It can actually, like, really have some real depth to it. Well, the world was ready for the Russian Five, baby. Yeah. Yeah, you know, it... I'm, I, I've said it before and I'll say it again. I was incredibly humbled by the response to the Russian Five. Um, it just from, you know, from the fans to people who aren't fans of the Red Wings or hockey that came to it, you know, to the fact that, like, I, you know, Scotty Bowman left, you know, this beautiful text message about how much it moved him. And, and Steve Eiserman loved the movie. And, you know, Chris Draper he wanted to show his son the movie, um, his son's hockey team before they played a state championship last summer. And I was like, yeah, dude, no problem. Let's set it up. Let's, you know, you gave me your time to interview. Least I can do is let you show your, your son and his, his friends, the film. And he t sent me a text the next morning where he was like, you know, my wife and I got really emotional reliving it. And it hit me, which is that my team and I, and I, I really got to give a lot of credit to my editor, David Fabello, for being able to kind of take my stream of consciousness and, and, and um, sometimes I can bounce a little bit over the place and really zero it in. Um, that it wasn't just a retelling of the story of the Russian Five. One of the most consistent compliments is that people were able to relive it um, emotionally. Yeah. You know, and, and as a storyteller, as a director, that is the biggest compliment one can ever receive. Is and you got a sentimental message from Scotty Bowman. That's its own reward, and it's by itself, right? Oh yeah, you know Scotty. He um, he's he's great, actually. Um, he's he's wonderful. I I'd love to make a documentary on Scotty. I, he's so you know, cards of the, the chest though. I don't I don't think he he'd go for it. Maybe as he gets a little bit older, he'll open up to that. <laughs> He's going to be 87 this fall. 87? Yeah. Like, Holy crap. I didn't know he was that old. Yeah, you know, but he's, he's still sharp, which is... In that case, you better hurry up. Yeah. Well, <laughs> maybe, maybe when he hits 88, he'll stop him up a bit. Listen, you made, uh, you made that time period come alive for me, and, 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 and you made me appreciate what happened in a way I didn't appreciate it at the time. And that says something. So thanks very much for a fantastic movie, The Russian Five. I watch it on Netflix, everybody. I'm sure it's easy for you to find. Uh, in uh, it's, on, it's on Amazon now. You can rent it on iTunes. Uh, we still got DVDs. Um, Maybe I did see it on Amazon. Yeah, probably, yeah, but on Amazon. Um, okay. You know, but that goes to an earlier question about, like, the distribution model. You know, it used to be back in the day, and this is, like, for the film, film people out there, um, when I started making the Russian Five, you could budget in and your profit waterfall, minimum 30, 30 grand from Netflix, right? Like even if you get the worst deal, there was a time when Netflix bought everything. By the time the movie was done, Netflix had, their business model changed so much that they were really only acquiring the top films out of Sundance and South by Southwest and Toronto and everything else they were making. And, you know, 
COVID, I think, had them open up a little bit more and they'll acquire libraries from the big distributors, but like they're not buying indie products anymore. Um, and it's five years, like, you know, it, it's a long time, but it's also a short time. And who knows what the, the film world and business models will look like post COVID um, as we go through COVID and then moving forward. Cause as I was saying, the path, you know, to take the film to the festivals and hope to show it, the festival world is shut down right now. Yeah, you know? But, you know, Joshua, there'll always be room for talented filmmakers like you. It, the models will change, but we'll still find a way to, to get to the talent. Well, I hope so. <laughs> you know, I want to so, Thank you so much for the time today. You've been terrific. A, a great, great interview. And uh, we're going to get you lots of views and, and listens as well. Cool. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And thanks for watching the movie and, and all the support and, you know, the kind words. And yeah, I just really appreciate it. My pleasure. See you later. See ya.